When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Welcome to episode 124 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yale religion scholar Catherine Lofted says that today's guest's book, quote, makes a critical intervention into the history of capitalism, unquote. She adds, quote, wherever a marketplace emerged, it did so in loud engagement with Protestants who saw its use for varied theological and social ends, unquote. Our guest today is Wesleyan University history professor Joseph Slaughter. His book is titled Faith in Markets, Christian Capitalism in the Early American Republic. Slaughter offers a new account of the interplay between religion and capitalism in early American history by focusing on 19th century Protestant entrepreneurs and how they infused faith into their business and, in turn, how those businesses shaped our capitalist economy today. It is a very satisfying and rich treatment of how pietism, Calvinism, and Arminianism influenced an array of what Slaughter calls Christian business enterprises. In the process, Slaughter challenges many of the sacred cows in the historiography of religion and American life. Joseph Slaughter will be with us momentarily, but first, let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net and check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that includes this podcast, our opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, our blog, The Arena, and our narrative podcast, which is now on hiatus on the history of evangelicals and politics, then head over to currentpub.com and click the red membership button. It's up in the top right corner of the screen. The best way to spread the word about this podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on X or Twitter at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at John Fia one. That's J-O-H-N-F-E-A one. Or you can follow current on Twitter at current underscore pub one. We are also on Facebook. 
Instagram, and Threads. And by the way, don't forget to visit our Etsy store where you can buy current swag, t-shirts, and mugs at this point. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews go a long way to helping us reach our audience. Joseph Slaughter is a scholar of Christianity, capitalism, technology, and war. His work also explores how religion shaped the way indigenous peoples and North American colonists approach warfare, while his current research focuses on the religious lives of 19th century U.S. firearm manufacturers. Before coming to Wesleyan, Slaughter taught early American naval and world history at the U.S. Naval Academy. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Maryland College Park in December 2017. Prior to his doctoral studies, he served in the U.S. Navy as a C-2 Greyhound pilot on the USS Harry S. Truman and a catapult and arresting gear officer on the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. Our interview today is based on his book, Faith in Markets, Christian Capitalism in the Early American Republic. That was published in 2023 with Columbia University Press. Our guest today on the podcast is Wesleyan University history professor Joseph Slaughter. He is the author of a brand new book just out with Columbia University Press titled Faith in Markets, Christian Capitalism in the Early American Republic. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here in chat. So you teach at Wesleyan University. Tell us a little bit about what you do there. What's your role? What are your responsibilities? Yeah, so I teach in the history department primarily. I'm also affiliated with the religion department as well as helping to run a new research center for the study of guns and society. And um, the latter is kind of unique. Actually, there are some good places that do research as far as public health perspectives and things like law. But amazingly enough, there are not any research centers devoted to a historical understanding of firearms in American history. So in addition to that, I teach uh, courses that are mainly revolving around capitalism, Christianity, firearms technology, as well as warfare. And it's a nice fit, right? Because you do have military uh, background. You were in the Navy, an officer in the Navy before you became a historian. How does that connect with your guns research? No, that's a good question. I always like to uh, remind faculty when they're bragging on themselves uh, in, in introductions that I'm the only faculty member on campus that's land a plane on a boat. So, <laughs> so um, no, I mean, I, I have a good friend of mine, actually, John Ismay, who's a reporter in conflict zones, both domestically and internationally. And he had the experience of being a, you know, an operator in combat for explosive ordnance disposal and really saw firsthand like how weapons are essentially, you know, tools of violence. And I would say that 
you know, even though I didn't have and would never pretend to have sort of the combat experiences he had, you know, I think you can't be a part of the military and reflect upon what its ultimate use is. And particularly, you know, having gone to graduate school, um, my first iteration of it in the midst of the worst of sort of the sectarian violence in Iraq, it really makes you reflect upon, you know, how not only weapons are used in, you know, conflict zones overseas, but then how increasingly a lot of them, you know, are migrating here and then showing up, you know, in people's Christmas cards and all sorts of other unexpected places. And so I, I think hopefully in a place like Wesleyan, you know, having had sort of an experience that is a little bit different from most of the other faculty that helps me, you know, speak into some of those areas with yeah. maybe a different source of authority, perhaps. Yeah. I remember, uh, some of you listeners may remember a while back, we had on my colleague in the Messiah University History Department, Sarah Myers. She's a military historian, studies the women's uh, women pilots in World War II, the WASPs. Her book's out now, so hopefully we got to get her back on the podcast. But anyway, I remember when we were interviewing her, some of you know Messiah University has a pacifist roots. So there were these questions like, should we be hiring a military historian to teach courses in military history? And so we asked that to Sarah and, you know, her answer just kind of secured her the job. She said, you know, why wouldn't you want a military historian at a pacifist school? Because you, you can see the, the sort of violence of war, right? Mm -hmm. Call attention to that. So yeah, definitely. So your book is on actually not about any of this. Uh, it's about <laughs> it's about uh, capitalism, early American capitalism in the in the nineteenth century. How'd you get interested in this subject? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I started this in twenty fourteen. That's yeah. when I finished my comprehensive exams. And astute listeners might remember that particular year was the year of the Burwell versus Hobby Lobby decision. Yeah which said that for-profit corporations could seek, you know, sort of exemption from the Affordable Care Act, you know, in this particular situation regarding like contraceptives, but it was establishing in general, the larger idea that for-profit companies could have a religious sort of ethos to them that needed to be considered. Well, Justice Ginsburg dissented. And in her dissent, she said something to the effect of, history was not on the side of for-profit businesses having a religious ethos to them. And that just seemed, that seemed interesting to me because, you know, you, you finish comps and you think, you know, everything about your particular field. And even though not a lot had been written about, written about it, I had come across enough to realize that there, that there were businesses that sort of sounded, at least to me, with my bare understanding that they kind of had a religious purpose and identity to them in the early 19th century. And so that made me, you know, kind of wonder, Hmm, you know, where is this disconnect, you know, coming from exactly. And as I started to do some more reading, I started getting the sense and started perceiving that there might actually also be some distinct kind of visions, different ideas about what we now see as an emerging capitalist system. 
particularly from some distinct theological um, backgrounds. Yeah, I didn't know that background to the book. I don't think you included it in the book at any point, but that's really interesting how how this this Hobby Lobby case triggered that. So at the heart of your book, Joe, is this idea of a Christian business enterprise. You kind of already kind of talked a little bit about this, but define it for us. What is a Christian business enterprise in the most basic sense? And then we'll get down into the weeds a little bit. Right. So there's a Hofstra law professor, Ronald Colombo, and he uses this phrase, businesses infused with religion. And this can mean anything from the packaging that you might find at a place like In-N-Out to maybe a proprietor that does a Bible study with a couple of his employees to somebody that just incorporates servant leadership principles that he derives from you know, different Christian leadership seminars into, you know, her business practices. Colombo came up with this term, um, religious business corporation about a decade ago, Bethany Morton also about a decade ago started writing about Christian free enterprise. I sort of, sort of merged those two to come up with this idea of Christian business enterprise because it really, I think it's essentially the same thing that they and increasingly others were writing about more specifically in the latter half of the 20th century. But I thought that the concept, you know, was describing things that I was seeing in the early 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And you then break this down in your book into three types of Christian business enterprise. Is it fair to call them approaches or, um, one is Christian communal capitalism. I'll just get them out here for at the start, right? One is the second one is Christian reformed capitalism and then Christian virtue capitalism. So let's start with Christian communal capitalism. The first major sort of person we meet in your book is a guy named George Rapp. How does he represent what you call Christian communal capitalism? Who is he and what is Christian communal capitalism? Yeah, well, Rapp is an immigrant from Württemberg um, who comes over with basically a a whole village in the early 19th century. So about 1804, 1805, there's a bunch of ships. It takes a a couple of years. And they're coming from a very sort of intense Lutheran pietist background where they felt like the Lutheran church back in Württemberg was corrupted. And they saw it as corrupted on several different levels. One of them was sort of its union with the state, but the second one was even just sort of revolving around, you know, telling them how their schooling should be, you know, all sorts of ways in which they were finding it increasingly difficult to live as, you know, what, you know, we would describe as a very sort of pietist kind of life. And this is the kind of pietism we normally associate with people like Philip Jakob Spainer and that, that kind of pietist, the Moravians or the the German groups. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and like Kate Cartier wrote about in her book, this, this, this impulse towards communal living emerged very early after they came to North America Within within the first couple of years that they were here, they started instituting this sort of communal process. And what I just found to be very interesting about them was they seemed to be sort of the vanguard of this 20th century communal society movement. 
and in many ways even inspired early socialists like Robert Owen. But at the very center of this and what they thought was the pillar of the whole thing was their pursuit of Christ. You know, if they thought Robert Owen, Francis Wright, these other sort of utopians had no chance of success because at the heart of the edifice was doing this in service of preparing for sort of God's kingdom on earth and what they thought is as a divine economy. And that could be very industrious. It could embrace technology, the latest innovations in, you know, cotton, wool, silk manufacturing, but at the root was ensuring that there was common sort of ownership of goods in the society and that the increasing acquisitiveness of the market was kept at bay. These are people who are, you know, you mentioned they, they have three different communities. Rap has three different communities over the years. At first, is it, is it actually Harmony, Pennsylvania, the first one? Is that the name of the town? Then yep. they go create another Harmony in Indiana. That was the Owen. Owen bought them out, right? This yep. the, the secular utopianist. And then you have Economy, Pennsylvania, which I think you say lasts almost to the 20th century. Um, it does. Yeah, the town of economy. Explain to me a little bit more. Like, how do you, how do you have a vision where you want to keep yourself insulated or protected from the market? Like, that's what we want to do. We don't want to be materialists. We want to give up all of our property, you know. And he turns out to be pretty much of an, uh, a very autocratic kind of lease, yeah. right? Like it's okay for everybody else to be materialistic because you know <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna create textiles and manufacture goods and participate in the, the growing market economy and it's okay for you to buy these things so that our community can stay you know pure or alive maybe right but we're not going to be influenced by them how do you how do you get around that tension right well they're convinced Christ is coming back very soon yeah and that you know, they're going to be part of the remnant that perseveres into the new millennium and that their economy is going to be the basis of what market exchange looks like in Christ's, you know, sort of reign on earth. So for them, they look at all these other people is they're going to perish. So, I mean, I think quite frankly, they're just not concerned about what the habits are of other Americans who are buying their textile products. They're also not people that are necessarily manufacturing, you know, the sort of things that we would consider to be luxury goods by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, they're very sort of rudimentary, you know, textile products. In later stages, when Christ doesn't show up, and that sort of requires some reassessment, they start getting into more investment capitalism, particularly as, you know, the membership is declining on into the 19th century. You know, just quite frankly, they think the second coming of Christ is right around the corner. So they're, they're just very focused on making sure that they're spiritually prepared for that. And then economically, they're also prepared for it. It's one of the reasons why they're piling up legendary amounts of capital in the form of gold, because, you know, they, they think the economic system is going to collapse and they're going to be the model, you know, from which you're going to build out of the ashes. So they believe that the kingdom of God will be on earth. It will be a new heaven and new earth. So let me let me get at the kind of larger interpretive point here, right? You know, back to your your grand argument of religion informing capitalism in some way or related to capitalism. Like what does the rap story sort of teach us about that? 
Well, I think it, it teaches us, and you know, this is probably jumping ahead somewhat to the other visions as well, that they're, they're sort of competing visions of the market as it's, you know, in the process of turning into what we see as a full-blown capitalist system and that there are aspects of it that don't necessarily sit well with, you know, what I would consider to be generally theologically conservative um, Christians, particularly Protestants who, you know, sort of take their Bible pretty seriously and their commitment to practicing their faith seriously as well. And that, that there's not sort of a, a monolithic response. And part of what I was getting at with these visions is to try to get away from the model that had typically been presented as, you know, sort of these kind of Christians either fleeing from the market and resisting it or just completely embracing it or sort of accommodating it. Um, I just, I was trying to, I just didn't, I don't, for various reasons, I just was sort of unsatisfied with that model. This is actually, your book is actually published in a series on the history of capitalism, right? Put out by uh, Columbia University Press, right? And the introduction, I talked about Catherine Lofton's phrase, her blurb about you making an intervention into the history of capitalism. So these are people who, right, economy, Pennsylvania, these are people who are rejecting the materialism of the market, even as they're contributing to it. They're accessing all of the same canal systems and transportation systems and so forth. And in the process, they're contributing to the growth of American capitalism, right? In a way that most people don't think about. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, can you visit Economy, Pennsylvania? I mean, I've been Pennsylvania. I don't think I've never been there. Maybe a little field trip or something. I mean, you can visit all of the sites. Um, Harmony, there's not much to see, although you can still see some of the buildings and they have a very small sort of local museum. New Harmony, of course, is a hybrid between Raps Harmony and Owens Harmony. But and probably better known for Owen, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But there's still a lot of the original yeah. Harmonist buildings are there and you can you can kind of tour around there. And then the most sort of interactive touring is possible at economy. And it's a full-blown sort of part of the Pennsylvania sort of state historical preservation um, effort. And they have an extensive archive there as well as a lot of the buildings that you can go in and take guided tours of. So it's fascinating. You know, if people, you know, live within distance of there, it's it's definitely worth going to visit. It's pretty fascinating. No one does people do people live in economy today? I mean, is it a is it a mm-hmm. municipality? Or is it just a, a park? No, no. It's and actually a lot of the bummer is that a lot of the more pedestrian housing, you know, is still in existence, but it's been it's covered up with like vinyl siding and and things like that. So yeah, it's 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 right kind of almost integrated into sort of residential yeah, housing. Yeah. Gave me a place to go. I, I definitely want to check that out next time I'm out there. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit here into the next type of kind of Christian business, Christian business enterprise, Christian reform capitalism. To the amateur historian, this one might be a little more familiar, Um, at least my take. That's my take on it. What is Christian reform capitalism? Yeah, I mean, these are people that they're very concerned 
like the communal capitalists with evolution in the marketplace, but rather than just, you know, worry about themselves, they're concerned about reforming the market itself and that they want to do that through businesses themselves. And, you know, sort of the, the real sort of theological underpinnings of their concern are coming from sort of a covenantal lens derived from sort of the, the Calvinist historical legacy. And although they're not all necessarily Presbyterians, there's sort of a shared vocabulary and rhetoric of the impending doom of the country because of certain aspects of the marketplace. And the one that I spend the most time writing about in the book are the Sabbatarians and the ones that are fearful of the implications for the country if the expansion of the work week continues into the Sabbath Sunday, like the trajectory is in the early 19th century. So what do you mean by this term covenant you used? How are you defining that? What do you mean by that? So in the, in the probably more common parlance, you know, obviously there's a whole very elaborate and complicated you know, history of covenantal theology going right, back right. to Calvin. But how are they using it? They're using it in a more pedestrian sense to think of a, a series of sort of overlapping covenants, just like the Puritans of, you know, sort of one's family, one's town, you know, and then one's a particular nation. And you just, you just read a lot of the, a lot of the rhetoric in the newspapers and coming out of pulpits in this era is a lot of hand-wringing over the doom and the destruction of the country because of, for in this instance, working on Sundays. And, you know, this is coming from, you know, obviously, you know, some people that know this period know there's fights over mail delivery, but there's also increasingly concern because of these expanded transportation networks that, you know, people are going to be riding canal boats on Sundays. They're going to be riding on, you know, the Hudson river steamboats on Sundays. And there's a pressure to do this because now Rochester is not a sleepy little village. It's almost overnight a boomtown because it's connected to New York City. And while a New York City merchant might feel the the freedom to take off on Sunday, a lot of the merchants in Rochester are arguing, well, we're on the periphery. We don't want to fall behind what's going on in the market. We need to act on, you know, <laughs> we need to act on, you know, our prerogatives and our information now. So we're not, you know, we don't want to be you know, restricted from working on Sundays and, you know, we're happy about this expansion. So it really sets up sort of essentially sort of early 19th century culture wars. So this almost sounds to me, the way you're using sort of the covenant relationship or the way they felt they had a covenant relationship almost sounds like today, you know, you hear among certain kind of, uh, Christian nationalists or Christian, you know, in many ways that what you're describing sounds a lot like a Christian Whigism, you know, in the early 19th century. I mean, the Whig party, right. Except oh, yeah. they're, not all, they're not all in on the, on the marketplace, but you know, you hear this verse second Chronicle seven fourteen. I was just typing yep. it in while you were talking, right. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from, you will hear from heaven and I will what, uh, redeem your land or oh yeah absolutely their land right so so yeah. in other words god has made a special like america has this kind of special covenant with god almost like a city on a hill the puritan kind of idea new israel and if we keep working on the sabbath and dishonoring the sabbath in our business practices god's going to be displeased with us is that the crux of it oh absolutely 
So, I mean, there's, I mean, it's a, I mean, I think this is a, a complete connection to that same concern today. And it, I mean, it's ironic because the people that you're referencing, I'm pretty sure most of them are not Calvinist or reformed. Yeah, <laughs> most yeah. of them have moved, you know, well beyond that, but it's that covenantal idea has just embedded itself in the American sort of Protestant psyche so powerfully that, yeah, I mean, that there was just reporting just recently about, you know, Speaker um, Johnson having, you know, said very similar sorts of yeah. things. And, and, you know, Mike Pence always famously yeah, yeah. used that throughout the yeah. campaign. And but um, it's this reformed, I love the, I love the, I love that you use the word reformed because there's something inherent within the reformed tradition about redeeming things, right? Redeeming the culture, redeeming capitalism in this case, right? Capitalism is good. We're not anti-capitalists, but we need to redeem capitalism for Christ. And the way that some of these businesses did it was through not shipping on Sundays or whatever. Tell me about, um, let's just get a, let's just get a concrete example here. Uh, Tell me about really briefly the pioneer line as an example of this. Yeah. So this is, this is a, a, a line that was, um, started to try to provide an alternative for people that did not want to travel on stagecoach lines that were traveling seven days a week. And this is a whole, it was not the first of these. There had been canal boat lines and steamboat services um, in the years prior to this in the 1820s that started Hudson and Erie is one that starts um, sooner. And many of them proliferate, you know, far after after it shuts down. So it's one of many of these. I chose it in part because it's just a really fun, colorful story. And it's tied to some very prominent vocal proponents in this movement. And, you know, there's multiple challenges of doing this, just like, just like there are today, coming up with a capital to start from scratch, you know, a stagecoach line is not easy. And so they're very you know, out there and evangelistic and trying to sell their vision to anybody that's got deep pockets and has connection to the larger evangelical reform community of the 1820s and 1830s. So uh, all these people sort of run in the same circles together. And what they quickly find is that two things, one, that actually running a line that holds to their principles is not as easy as one would think because not only do they want to not work on Sundays, but they also want to have stagecoach drivers that are like pious, you know, Christian sorts of characters and not the, you know, colorful swearing, drinking, you know, stereotypes of these characters in that era. And, uh, and they quite frankly, can't find enough of these so-called Christian drivers that they imagine that they're going to hire for their line. So it's just, I think it's a, it's a fun example of how, you know, you try to set out to do something with a certain vision in mind and then executing it as, you know, wholly a different matter. And then they turn to find that, oh, there's actually other, you know, Bible believing Christians out there that don't agree at all with their sort of interpretation of the Sabbath. Obviously there's, you know, seventh day Baptist, but, you know, even beyond that, you know, others that don't see the same urgency and sort of legalistic concern with their interpretation of, of the Sabbath. And so that creates just tons of blowback and it just, it becomes a huge cultural war battle, to be honest. Yeah. 
So this is another model, right, of these lines and these businesses, these Sabbatarian businesses who are helping to, again, back to your big grand point, right, helping to forge and create what we know today as American capitalism that are deeply rooted in kind of religious ideas, going back to the Ginsburg, yeah. you know, Ginsburg thing that you mentioned. Um, Another example that some of your readers would know just real quickly would be like R.G. Dunn and company, the, the early credit bureau that yeah. started by the Tappans. And the whole idea there is that how do you trust people in this new market? And it's telling to me that these were like ardent reformed, you know, uh, you know, evangelical types. When I say reform, I mean more of reformist minded rather than theological commitments necessarily. Um, but that, you know, that, that they're the ones that come up with this credit monitoring system. Um, so it's just another, there's just multiple different ways you can peel this. Other historians are now writing about abolitionism, you know, not made by slaves and these sorts of movements um, by Quaker businessmen in the same era. So there's actually, I think, a lot more that people are starting to uncover about this particular vision. Yeah. Time is getting away from us a little bit here, but I do, of course, want to ask you about the third then kind of Christian business enterprise. And this one's, I had to think through a lot more than the other two. It's much more nuanced, in my opinion. And this is you Christian. and my you and my mother in law mother in law both. Okay, good. good. I'm not <laughs> she alone. Me, she made me uh, elaborate on just the other. I day. hope that your mother in law is listening to this episode. Hopefully, what is Christian virtue capitalism? And your case study here is the Harper Publishing Company, the Harper Brothers, right? Harper and Row, Harper Collins today, right? Harper's right. Magazine. Explain that for us. Yeah, I think the difference with the reform capitalists is they're not focused on reforming the market. And the, the focus here is on the products that we produce and how do these products make for a more virtuous community, particularly in their minds, citizenship and that, you know, 19th century's you know, concerns over producing a virtuous citizenship. So producing family libraries that are affordable and available. So, you know, young people can grow up not reading these cheap, you know, fiction dime novels, but reading better sorts of things, biographies, you know, accounts of, you know, travel and, you know, some of the classic works from ancient history, you know, these, these sorts of, these sorts of things. And I think that you can, you can, if you, you know, struggling with kind of understanding what I'm talking about. It would be, I think, analogous to some of the early organic stores like Whole Foods that are trying to sell people products that are going to not only be made in a right way, so they're, they, they kind of contain virtue, but then they make the consumer more virtuous by, by buying them. Yeah. The Harpers were Methodists. Correct. And you kind of run a parallel story in this chapter between their sort of business and the kind of, I don't know if you call it the rise or the development of St. John's Methodist Church, which was a flagship Methodist church in early 19th century New York. And then Arminianism plays into this, right? Talk about those kind of Methodist connections. Yeah. Well, you can go, you can go visit St. John today. I've been there. Uh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. John Street yeah. Methodist, which, you know, has been preserved kind of as a museum, as the mothership of Methodism. And yeah, no, um, the interesting thing about that particular church is that it's populated by people like the Harpers who come to New York as journeymen 
apprentice types learn the trade, start their own companies, and then suddenly are wealthy and influential enough that one of the brothers is elected mayor of the city. And so this sort of rags to riches, you know, story is very common in the John Street Church. And it's taking Methodism from its, you know, sort of more, you know, working class roots into by mid 19th century, you know, largest denomination in the country and increasingly occupying a place in the middle class and particularly, you know, sort of in the revivals that are happening in people's parlors and things like that in the mid 19th century. So they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, sort of experiential living that out. And I think that they're also sort of at the same time communicating, you know, the individualism and the, you know, sort of the agency that Arminianism is, you know, sort of bringing free will to that conversation. And that they also at the same time have, you know, an increasingly, I guess, a product line that's much more also reflective of that same evolution within Methodism over time as well. To what extent, you know, you mentioned with the Christian reform capitalism, it's about kind of this covenant with God, right? We need to cleanse the market of its immorality, whether it be Sabbath or whatever, in order to create a Christian, you know, to keep a Christian nation. So God will be pleased. I also sense a kind of almost Christian nation kind of idea with, with the virtue capitalism too, right? In a kind of, again, you pointed this out already, as yet sort of genteel middle-class Protestantism that is, again, seems very Whiggish to me. I mean, the Whig political party, you know, kind of we're going to establish this Christian civilization by disseminating the right kind of literature and education. I mean, is there some similarities between the two kind of grand schemes, or maybe they're just coming at it a little bit differently? I think there's just probably a, just a different a difference in how it's articulated and a difference in emphasis you know is probably what i would say you know the, the harpers even though they were very explicit in sort of integrating their christianity into their products through using you know christian reviewers that would censor and change different products and or different um you know writings and books they were never really concerned with changing the market as much as they were more just concerned with creating products that were the right thing to produce. Yeah. And what made them the right thing was that they were sort of broadly godly in their content and in their manufacture and that that would then be translated to the people in the country and that there was less of a rhetoric about we need to do this because you know it's part of making sure that we continue to stay in God's covenant and avoid judgment and more in the sort of almost post millennial drive to just create Christian civilization everywhere you can. Yeah, that, that's interesting to me. That's well put. 
there's not a sense of covenant within the heart. It's almost like a Christian republicanism in the small r, mm-hmm. yep. in the kind of classical kind of civil yep. humanist kind of kind of sense in that way. Yep. Just for the listeners out there, one of the things I love to do is I, I love to make connections between previous guests on the podcast. Uh, those of you might remember, I don't know, five or six, seven, eight episodes ago, we had Stephen Prothero on the program talking about his uh, book on Eugene. I think it was Eugene X-Men, if I'm not mistaken. His first name yeah. was Eugene. And I think you mentioned him briefly in your book, too, as you're kind of reflecting on the legacy. Uh, X-Men was the religious publisher at Harper and Row. Go back and listen to that episode if you want to make these kind of intellectual connections over over episodes here uh, at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. There's been a lot of books lately, and let's, let's get it, talk a little historiography here. There's been a lot of books on um, kind of Christian business. You mentioned uh, Bethany Morton's on Walmart. You have actually previous guests on this uh, podcast, Darren Dochuk talking about oil and Christianity, Nicole Kirk, who was on the podcast talking about department stores and religion. Kevin Cruz was actually on the podcast to talk about Twitter, but he, (laughs) yeah, Twitter historians, uh, which he's now off Twitter, which is interesting, but, but he, he had a book on, um, you know, how business shaped this idea of Christian nationhood and, we haven't had Darren Graham on the program, but he wrote an interesting book about Christian business, Chick-fil-A, fast food, right? Your book's on the early 19th century, but, you know, is there any connection with this kind of literature uh, going on here? Certainly, all of those books that I just described are about what you're calling Christian business enterprises, right? Put your book into that kind of kind of genre, right, of literature on Christianity, the economy, capitalism, business. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's the bridge between what is a huge voluminous set of works on the Puritans and work and business, and then especially second half of the 20th century number of works. You know, you do have some, like you mentioned, I love Nicole Kirk's book, on Wanamaker, you know, sort of late 19th, early 20th century. So you do have some there, but most of kind of what you're describing is like a, a 20th century story, yeah. you know, and there's lots of others of these characters out there like Laterno and Walt Maloon. I mean, there's, I mean, just, you could write infinite number of these biographies of these folks. And then similarly, you know, in the 1600s into the early 1700s, just so much, whether it's, you know, Bernard Baylin or Mark Valeri or people have written just wonderful accounts of a you know supposed conflict between business and religion in the 1600s. And then you have, like we mentioned earlier, Kate Carte and her great book on Moravians, sort of in the mid 1700s. So I, I sort of see myself as a bridge between these two really great yeah. sets of literature where I don't know why. But for whatever reason, it's it's sort of a big gaping um, gap between the two of them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I view the book as well. You know, all those 20th century books are getting a lot of attention. But I think what your book does is say, hey, hold on a second, guys. Right. And gals, (laughs) this has been going on a lot longer than you think. This merger of, of kind of religion and business practices. Right. And I think, you know, to be honest, you know, it's not that there hasn't been things written about 
business in terms of religion in the marketplace in the early 19th century, because, you know, whether it's Johnson shopkeeper or millenniums or sellers, you know, marketplace revolution, there obviously has been a lot of conversation, but they've just always conceived of business in a very different sort of way in that era and not always super, in my mind, productive at linking those two different sets of literature on either side as effectively because of it. Is that because they have not considered religion as a factor or because they have created such a binary difference between like there was religion and that was always critical of the market and they, they don't think about the connections? Yeah. Or just, you know, I think there was a generation of scholars who just didn't really take religion super seriously in its own right. And so it was just a facade for, um, you know, class conflict or other materialist concerns that, that were, were really important. Yeah. One of the things I think, and you've already talked about this, I was going to ask you a question about this, but one of the things that I, I really like your book sort of complicates the narrative, right? You have this idea of like laissez-faire, good, socialism or communalism, bad, right? But your book tells a much more complex story about markets and religion. And I think that's, I think, the most important contribution in many ways that you make to this. Last question, change gears again a little bit here as we wrap up. Tell me about what you're working on these days as a scholar and as a historian. Yeah, absolutely. And just real quick on what you were saying there in conclusion, I really did have sort of two audiences in mind. I felt like there's a progressive audience that maybe doesn't know this history and it would be informative to them. And then there's sort of a conservative Christian, you know, community that probably could use a little bit of the complicating of this era as well. And I think that also hits the head. You hit the head of the nail kind of on our listenership too. So (laughs) I think you'll get people who on both of those from both of those camps listening. Yeah. Sounds good. No, my next thing is that it's kind of grown out of my work with this center on the study of guns in society. And it came about because I now live and work and research in the Connecticut River Valley, which for the listeners that don't know, that is like the Silicon Valley of the United States in the 19th century, the heart of the firearms industry, which was part of a larger drive towards industrialized precision manufacturing. And from Eli Whitney Jr.'s factory down in New Haven, uh, a guy named Simeon North in Middletown, Connecticut, right where I am, on up to uh, the Springfield Armory in Western Massachusetts, as just one firm after another. I mean, every firm you can name, Smith, Wesson, Winchester, all these folks, including Colt, had a factory here. And I ended up having a tip-off that Colt, when he died in his late 40s, was memorialized by his very religious wife with a church. And that seemed very interesting to me. And it started making me wonder these, you know, firearms manufacturers, you know, what, what connection did they have, if any, with religion? And it turns out people like Colt, you know, were not very religious at all, but his wife was very religious and he died young and she inherited the company and then ran it with her brother for the next 40 years. And she was an extremely sort of devout Episcopal woman. So I started realizing that there might be an interesting story here. And when I started to look around for more literature, I realized that 
unfortunately, very little has been written about the intersection between firearms and American Christianity. And, you know, obviously, you know, as we see sort of the proliferation of a lot of sort of so-called God and guns culture, you know, right now, having a suspicion that while I'm sure there are certain unique forces in the last 30 years that have helped produce that, you know, being sort of a historian of the early 19th century, being suspicious that there are probably other signposts along the way, like this church in, um, in Hartford, Connecticut, that might help also point to how firearms are moving from tools to something more for a lot of people. So it's Christian business enterprises meets gun culture. Yeah, it's like gun capitalism. Once again, Joe Slaughter is going to show us that these debates have a history, right? These present day debates have a history, which is what all good historians do. We have been talking with Joseph Slaughter. The book is Faith in Markets, Christian Capitalism in the Early American Republic. Go out and get it. It's a scholarly monograph, but it's very, very accessible and very, very readable. And, uh, you know, holiday season, right? Get out there and get a copy of the book. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. you enjoyed this interview with Joseph Slaughter. This is a really, I think I said this in the intro, this is a deeply satisfying work of history. For those of you who know a little bit about the historiography of the early republic or the history of American capitalism, there is a lot of thoughtful analysis here that sort of challenges some prevailing assumptions about capitalism in the early republic. There's a lot here about the nature of evangelical religion, Christianity in the early republic. As I said in the interview, this is a book about the history of capitalism, which brings religion to bear on that subject, as opposed to first a book about religion that talks about capitalism. It's published in the Columbia Studies in the History of U.S. Capitalism series. It's not published in a kind of religious history series. So uh, Joseph Slaughter's doing some really, really good work. This new book he's working on, on gun manufacturing, just looks like it's going to be excellent. You know, the connections between uh, religion and gun culture, you know, so prevalent in our society today. Again, there is an antecedent for this. And I think Joseph Slaughter is going to offer some helpful ways of thinking about how we got to the situation that we're in today. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, We're approaching the holidays here. We are recording this episode on December 8th, 2023. We could really use your help at Current. If you enjoy our podcasts, I mean, we've had some great guests. We just had Drew Gilpin Faust from Harvard on. This season has been one of our best, I think, in terms of the quality of the authors and thinkers that we've had on the podcast. 
Uh, we got a surprise for you in January. Probably our most famous guest, you know, that we've ever had is uh, agreed to come on. I'm not going to tell you who it is yet, so it'll be a surprise. But these things cost money to make. You know, we need your support to keep us going. I'd love to make this a regular weekly podcast. We've been going weekly for a good portion of this year, but we can't sustain that without your help. So again, head over to currentpub.com. Uh, click that red membership button uh, for $5 a month. You not only will get the podcast, technically you get that anyway, it's free, but you'll get access to all of our writing over there, no paywall and so forth. Again, we could really use your support. If this is our last episode, this may be our last episode before the holidays. I wish everyone a happy holidays. I hope you get to spend some time with friends and family. Maybe even get caught up on some old episodes of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Whatever the case, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening in 2023. And may a way of improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. Our producer is Casey Lehman. She's out of Nashville. And I, John Fia, am your host. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.